expanding the boundaries of what it means to be creative and looking at creativity in many, many different contexts and how people, you know, going about their lives and their work are are exercising imagination and creativity in many ways. And so I feel like creativity is, you know, it's something that we all um, possess. And again, whether we, you know, we may cultivate it in certain particular areas, um, but that creativity can also be an end unto itself. This is Unconditioning. Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello, and welcome to the 66th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week, I have with me Melinda Rothhaus, PhD. She is a professional creativity, leadership, and mindfulness coach consultant, focusing on organizational culture, innovation, and change management. She is an educator, a facilitator, a public speaker based in Austin, Texas, and is the creator and host of the new podcast, SynCreate, empowering creativity, exploring the intersections of creativity, psychology, and spirituality and expanding the boundaries of what it means to be creative. Her best-selling book, Sin Create, a guide to navigating the creative process for individuals, teams, and organizations, co-authored with Charlotte Gulick, was released in November of 2021 and won a Silver Nautilus Award for Creativity and Innovation. Her first book, A Mindful Approach to Team Creativity and Collaboration in Organizations, Creating a Culture of Innovation, was published in 2020 by Palgrave Macmillan. She offers leadership development, executive and career coaching for individuals, and facilitates mindful collaboration, culture building, and innovation for organizations and teams. She's also the founder and principal at Austin Writing Coach and the co-founder of Syncrete, as well as a musician and photographer, and she leads workshops and retreats on mindfulness and creativity. She has a PhD in psychology with a focus on organizational creativity and collaboration, mindfulness, and the neuroscience of creativity. She is a warm and engaging presenter, and her approach to coaching and consulting draws on the principles of humanistic psychology and mindfulness, as well as over 20 years of experience and training as an educator, coach, musician, and performer. She draws upon broad-based expertise in writing, public speaking, and the expressive arts, as well as extensive experience with teaching, training, storytelling, and content development, consciousness and spirituality studies, and mindfulness meditation. Melinda is also a professor at Saybrook University, where I'm currently pursuing my PhD. And so it's been a pleasure to connect with her. And we actually have a lot of similarities in our paths and she has a lot of wisdom to share. So looking forward to presenting to you, Melinda Rothhaus. Enjoy. The podcast is about authenticity and focusing on that inner voice, that inner piece of you. As a creative, as a musician, as a psychologist, I feel like you've probably had a lot of time to contemplate that inner thing and guidance that we're referring to. 
So can you recall the first time in your life that you remember recognizing that voice within you and realizing that it was something that you could follow and it was like purely your own? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Actually, one of my earliest memories, one of my earliest conscious memories, I was probably four or five years old and we were living in Georgia at the time and I was outside playing in the yard and you know, I used to love to just go out and, and kind of, you know, roam around the, you know, the yard where we lived. And, you know, I, I don't even remember exactly what time of year it was or whatever, but it was a beautiful day. And I was just outside and just, you know, exploring. And um, I just remember having this incredibly vivid thought, which was this whole life is just a dream. And one day I'm going to wake up. it's like where did that come from (laughs) you know it's kind of makes you wonder um but it's you know it's interesting because you know I wasn't raised particularly like religiously um my dad is Jewish my mom was raised Christian but they were both you know fairly agnostic you know when I was growing up and and so I wasn't really raised I didn't have any kind of particular spiritual beliefs or traditions kind of imposed on me. But eventually later in my life, I found my way to Buddhism and meditation. Right. And so this notion of waking up. Right. Has been a huge theme. So you said you were about four or five Mm -hmm. at that that time. Yeah. So you compared it to a dream. So Mm -hmm. You have vivid dreams as a kid that you were able to kind of like compare it to that thing of waking up from a dream. Right. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, you know, I can't remember any. Well, actually, I do. I did have a recurring nightmare as a kid um, that I was in a house. Um, I think it was like my grandmother's house and there was like an intruder and they were chasing me. And I would, I would go into this closet to hide. And then eventually like they would find me and I would just wake up. Right. And it was this recurring thing that happened. I don't know how many times. And then the final time that I had that dream, I, I recognized it was almost like a lucid dreaming scenario kind of. And I just, I just realized like, Oh, I've been here before. And and then in the dream, I was able to like burrow a hole in the wall and get away. Oh, wow. And then I never had that dream again. So, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> kind of an intense example, but um, yeah, definitely, um, you know, c- certainly I-, I always had, I would say a very vivid um, imagination, you know, as well as dream life, I guess. You brought up spirituality when I asked you that original question. So I, I kind of just want to define that meaning for you. So does the inner voice connect to spirituality in your in your life for yourself? Yes, I believe so very much. I, I believe so much of kind of my particular spiritual path, which is a little bit eclectic, but you know, largely kind of rooted in, in meditation and mindfulness. Um, 
you know, is very much what I think the theme of your show is about is really, you know, tuning in, getting really present, getting really grounded and, and listening to that inner voice, that inner wisdom, that intuition, you know, and I think so many of us struggle because there's, especially nowadays, there's so much noise in the world and there's so many messages coming in and, I'm reading Gabor Mate right now, the myth of normal and just, you know, the sort of like toxicity that is all around us all the time and how hard it can be to just pause and go inward and, and begin to listen and trust that inner voice. You know, I think another piece of this for me throughout my whole life, I think we all have intuition. I think we all have intuitive capabilities. It's more a question of, you know, do we develop them? Do we tune into them? And I think for me, part of my journey has been um, to trust my intuition. It's always been there. I didn't always heed it, right? So really coming to pay attention to what is the intuition saying and actually follow that. Yeah, it's one thing to recognize that intuition within you, but then to like be able to integrate it and act alongside of it or within it is a whole other animal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, maybe part of the developmental process is, you know, we have to learn and how do we learn by our mistakes and not following our intuition and experiencing the consequences of that, whether it's problematic relationships or whatever it might be in my case uh, anyway. And, um, you know, and then you kind of have to learn those painful lessons and then, you know, you start to actually trust yourself more and more. So you said that you were raised without really a religion attached to you. So you you got to Buddhism somehow. So I'm curious as to how that journey kind of unfolded as far as how you discovered that and meditation and mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, you know, so there's a part of me that wonders if that seed was always somehow there karmically for whatever that's worth. But um, I remember in high school reading the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse and, um, you know, in, I went off to college and I was studying cognitive science and biopsychology. So kind of how does the brain work? How does the mind work? And I was always really interested in this sort of deeper existential questions. And then, um, you know, I didn't actually take any religion or religious studies classes in college. I did actually end up getting a master's in religious studies later, but I started reading about Buddhism, you know, things like Alan Watts and, um, and Taoism in particular was very resonant for me when I discovered the Tao Te Ching. Um, that just felt like <clears throat> truth you know, even though it's very sort of paradoxical wisdom, um, it just rang true for me in a way that, that 
no other sort of spiritual text or tradition really had up to that point. So that became a real touchstone for me. Um, and I had some friends in college that were Buddhists and, you know, so learned from them a little bit. And, um, and then I ended up strangely enough, getting a master's in religious studies, which, um, I had gotten interested in environmental studies, environmental science, and I had actually started a master's in environmental science and then realized that, you know, the math and science side is not my strong suit. And, um, and I'm much more kind of humanities and linguistically oriented. And um, at the time, I was at Indiana University in the Midwest, and uh, they had in, within their religious studies department, which is quite renowned, they had some people that were working on environmental ethics. So looking at the same kinds of questions and issues, but more from a philosophical kind of spiritual angle. And so that was like a totally new, you know, perspective for me. And so I, I took a class and fell in love with it. And then I actually just fell in love with the study of religion. And I think I sort of came at it, you know, without any particular baggage from my own upbringing. And so it was all just very fascinating to me. You know, I, I think like when you study religion, it's such a fascinating window into different worlds, you know, how people think, what they believe, how they structure their lives. And I was particularly interested in um, ritual and arts as they figure into religious practice, music and dance and performance and things like that. Um, and so I ended up taking, you know, a number of courses in kind of Hinduism, Buddhism, and again, you know, found it all very fascinating, but I was not practicing meditation at that time. And it was actually sort of years later, I was working with a therapist. I was living in New Orleans um, and working and teaching at Tulane University. And I went to see a therapist there more for kind of like, you know, managing stress and things like that. But she um, worked with me a little bit on meditation and gave me some guided meditations that I found very helpful. And then this was like in the sort of 2003 to 2005 um, range. And then Hurricane Katrina came. So that was like a huge, you know, disruptor in my own life. And that's um, what brought me to Austin, Texas, where I've been living ever since that time. And uh, I was in a relationship at the time that ended up breaking up. And right after that happened, um, I had been renting a house right down the street from a local meditation center. And I'd always been curious about it. And I had never gone inside. And after I went through that breakup and I had just gone through this huge upheaval and this move, and I'm just kind of feeling ungrounded and like a stranger and a strange land and I decided okay I'm gonna I'm gonna go in there and so they had like a beginning meditation instruction and I went in and 
um, you know, just received instruction and started practicing meditation more formally and regularly and really connected with the community. And then, you know, there's kind of that saying, like, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, or when the student is ready, the path opens up. And that's really what it was like for me. I, I just kind of dove in, like I was ready. I'd sort of been primed through all these other experiences earlier in my life. And I just began, you know, really practicing and studying Buddhism and, and meditation and mindfulness in earnest. Yeah. 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 What a, what a great place to end up after the hurricane happened. Uh, so there's lots of different types of meditation and lots of different types of Buddhism. Yes. True. So, what did you find yourself falling into? Yeah, yeah. So um, this particular uh, center was um, it kind of focused in um, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, but really with a very strong um, grounding in, you know, mindfulness meditation. Um, so I practiced that and studied that for many years. And, and in Tibetan Buddhism, there's um, you know, also sort of a shamanic component to it. Um, so some, you know, just really interesting kind of rituals and practices around that, that I found helpful. Um, you know, I've also done, you know, insight meditation and, and just kind of basic mindfulness meditation. So I've, I've practiced and studied in many different, um, kind of strands of Buddhism. Um, I taught religious studies also for many years. Um, so, um, but yeah, the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I guess I would say is a sort of closest to my heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's lots of, so meditation is kind of like a trendy sort of term nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. It's about a lot about like all of like the benefits that it can provide to your life. So as you who are someone who like actually did the practice and are probably still practicing, mm-hmm. can you explain what it brought to your life or how it opened up doors for you? Absolutely. So um you know just prior to when I started practicing when I went to the meditation center, um you know, as a result of all this sort of upheaval I'd been through and this breakup. I mean, I was, I'd never had like panic attacks before in my life. And I started having panic attacks. And one of the things, you know, there was like, I guess this series of, of what we call auspicious coincidences that kind of led me to that point. And one of them was coming across uh, Pema Chodron, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher and writer. And she has a book Um, that I think have brought many, many, many people to the path of Buddhism, which is called When Things Fall Apart, right? And she's kind of talking about her own journey, uh, you know, into Buddhism and meditation. And I think a lot of us, you know, kind of come, come to spirituality when we're at a crisis point, perhaps. Um, so that was definitely, um, the case for me. Um, and so it was very grounding, you know, I started, I was also reading, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name, uh, Eckhart Tolle, what's the name of his, the power of now. I was also reading that 
And so just this idea that you could simply sit and be still and be fully present, even in the middle of a, a panic attack or extreme anxiety or something, you know, it's so seemingly paradoxical, you know, usually when we feel that way, we'll do anything to escape that feeling, you know, it's, it's almost completely counterintuitive to just like, okay, I'm going to sit and be fully present with this totally overwhelming anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. But I started doing that. And what I discovered is that it would actually subside. You know, I didn't actually have to do anything or go anywhere or find some way to repress it or get away from it. I could just be fully present and breathe. Breathing is a huge part of mindfulness. And then after a little while, like everything changes, right? And something would start to shift and the anxiety would start to, you know, abate. And then I could go on with my day. So that was like the first piece of it, right? And then I found as I started to practice more and more, you know, this, this idea that Viktor Frankl talks about that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And I just found that, you know, more space started to open up between something would happen and I would have a reaction. Whereas prior it was just instant. Right. And I think for most of us, it's just instant. Like, somebody does something that, you know, upsets us and we react to it, right? It's just, that's what we do. Um, and so just discovering like, oh, there's actually space there. And then there's a choice, right? right? We can decide how we want to respond rather than just react. So that was a big one, you know, just going like, oh, okay. I, I have more choice around just how I want to go about my life. And then I think the other piece that sort of Buddhism, the teachings gave me is kind of a, just a framework that really made intuitive sense to me where in a way that it hadn't earlier in my life, when I was studying Buddhism, it seemed a little pessimistic to me, but then somehow as I went through my life and, you know, the, the first noble truth of Buddhism, life is suffering you know, and I think at a certain point, you know, I had experienced enough like direct suffering that that really resonated. And of course, suffering, you know, it can be large or small. It doesn't have to be some terribly traumatic, tumultuous event like a hurricane or a war or whatever. You know, there's the everyday suffering that we all experience. And, um, you know, and then the idea is that there, you know, is a possibility to relieve that suffering, which is created by, you know, we want to hold on to things. We don't want things to change. We have cravings, all this kind of stuff. And, and that actually, if we, we do sit and practice and be present, you know, a lot of that suffering turns out to be self-generated in many cases, right? Or an event happens that's difficult or traumatic, but then it's like our own mental machinery 
that adds to and compounds the suffering. So it's a way for me of just working with my mind, noticing these certain ruts or these patterns that my mind gets into and these rabbit holes that I go down and then just being able to just kind of step back a little bit and go, oh, oh, that thing's happening again. Oh, I see. Yeah. And again, then a little more space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of embracing the presence and impermanence at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in a way where maybe at times earlier in my life, I had had a little bit of like, sort of, you know, my parents uh, were both physicians, retired now, but, you know, very rationalist way of thinking, very scientific way of thinking. And I think for me, sometimes that bordered on the nihilistic um, you know, I always had a spiritual side to me. Um, but then somehow the Buddhist teachings just helped give me a framework for understanding life that I hadn't necessarily had before, as well as a community of practitioners, which was incredibly helpful and valuable. And, um, and that was really life-changing. Is gratitude a piece that fits in there as well? Because I feel like when you insert gratitude in those situations, all of those things disappear. Absolutely. Yes. And I think, you know, gratitude is something that I try to practice um, and I, and I believe in it very much and I, I recommend it to clients and it's amazing to me, you know, sometimes how difficult it is for many of us to actually feel gratitude or, you know, in some cases with people I work with, like how hard it is to actually feel like it's okay to feel good about ourselves. Right. Which gratitude kind of involves that being grateful for like what we do have in our lives, what's going well, you know, what, what we could be proud of, you know, and that it's okay to feel good about ourselves in that way. But it, yeah, to me, it's, a practice. Um, and it doesn't always come easily. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, you brought up clients. Um, <laughs> so how did we move from this mindful meditation discovery into yeah. where you're guiding them through these processes? Yes. Yes. So, um, like I mentioned, I had a, a background in higher education and, um, I had started a PhD program years earlier in anthropology that I didn't end up continuing. Just, it wasn't quite the right fit, but I always kind of knew I wanted to. I've always been very sort of academically inclined and um, intellectually inclined. Um, and so I had been uh, teaching. I taught for five years as adjunct uh, faculty at Austin Community College. And then I had started kind of on the side, a coaching business, focusing on writing and creativity coaching, initially writing and then, and then creativity more broadly. And I loved that model, that way of working with people one-on-one -on -one in depth. Um, and so I got a coaching certification. I went through training. Um, and then the same year that I did my coach training is when I actually decided um, to do the PhD and I started my program at Saybrook 
in 2013. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I mentioned I came to Austin after Katrina and I spent a number of years just kind of like rebuilding my life and trying to figure, you know, just get my footing and figure out what I was doing in the world. Um, and then, you know, thinking more and more like first you're just in survival mode. Right. And then you start to build a foundation. You're like, okay, well, what do I, what am I really feeling called to? What do I really feel drawn to? And again, some interesting synchronicities on the way, um, as a writing coach, I, uh, ended up working with a couple of people that were working on their PhDs in psychology at Pacifica graduate Institute. Um, and which kind of has a Jungian focus, graduate programs in psychology. So similar to Saybrook. And I enjoyed working with them so much and the topics that they were exploring and just this, this idea of Jungian and humanistic psychology. And so I, I started thinking, well, okay, maybe this is maybe this is the path I want to follow. And so I started researching different schools and programs, particularly um, on the West Coast, um, you know, kind of hybrid psychology graduate programs. And I found Saybrook and it had the creativity studies specialization. And so that just seemed like, yep, that's the right fit. And, you know, I talked to some faculty and, and students and alums and just felt like, yep, this is the right one. So it was actually the only program that I applied to at that point um, and was accepted. And so um, started the program and, you know, immediately felt like, yep, I found my tribe. These are my people. This is where I'm supposed to be. Right. The word creativity can be defined in many ways. Yes. So what is your definition of creativity? Yes. Great. Thank you. Yes. I had to do a lot of defining <laughs> as part of my, uh, as part of my dissertation process. So, you know, in creativity studies, I feel like I'm compelled to say this, right. You know, we talk about this idea of that for something to be creative, it needs to be both novel and useful, right. So it hasn't been done before and it fulfills a particular purpose and, you know, certainly something to that, but I, I also feel very strongly that we are all creative. We all have that inherent capacity as human beings. You know, we're adaptive, we're problem solvers. We're all constantly exercising our creativity in so many different ways in our daily lives, whether we consider ourselves artists or not. And that's something that I am really trying to explore in my podcast, the Syncreate podcast, and really, you know, expanding the boundaries of what it means to be creative and looking at creativity in many, many different contexts and how people, you know, going about their lives and their work are are exercising imagination and creativity in many ways. And so I feel like creativity is, you know, it's something that we all possess. And again, whether we, you know, we may cultivate it in certain particular areas, um, but that creativity can also be an end unto itself. So again, in creativity studies, we talk about creative process and creative product and so often out in the world, we're focusing on works of art or, you know, 
innovations or things like that. And that's wonderful. But I also feel, you know, in my own experience as a musician, particularly and photographer, that creativity can be so, um, so healing and so beneficial and just enjoyable as a process unto itself. And so I lead retreats on, you know, kind of mindfulness and creativity, contemplative arts, which is just exploring the creative process from a perspective of mindfulness, you know, that while we may be channeling our creativity toward very particular ends, which is great, that, um, creativity is something that, you know, we, we all exercise in different ways, whether that's cooking or gardening or how we decorate our house. We just, you just mentioned you moved into a new house. It's like, how am I going to, you know, set up my place? What am I going to hang on the walls? You know, how do we dress? How do we adorn ourselves? Those are all exercising creativity. For spiritual background, how does that influence creativity for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the other things I did growing up, I, I got involved with music from a pretty young age as a singer and I um, trained in classical voice and opera from a fairly young age, starting when I was in middle school and, you know, classical singing and opera is such an incredibly stylized form and there's all these techniques and you're, you know, you're cultivating your, your voice in a very, very particular way. And, um, you know, I did other things as well, musical theater and choirs. And I sang in an all women's acapella group in college, which was wonderful, but somehow the classical training, it's such a wonderful foundation but then for me it also felt kind of confining in a way and there came a point where um I wanted to like do my own music which I eventually started writing songs and things like that but you know at a certain point I felt like my own creativity started to feel stifled because I would like go, go and sit down to like try to write something or play something. And I felt like I was, you know, restricted in some way by all these like rules I had learned about music growing up and things like this. And then, so when I started practicing meditation and I discovered contemplative arts, which is, uh, you know, a way to practice creativity that's grounded in mindfulness. And it's a very, very different approach. It's not about like technique or pre-planning, or I have this intention to create this thing and then I'm going to create it. It's really about getting back to like, just being fully present and playing and experimenting and seeing what wants to emerge you know, and I found that to be so freeing and there were different, you know, exercises that we would do and just, just ways to like tune into the senses and then see, you know, what's vivid in the world, what catches our attention, what inspires us and then create from that place. And it was so fresh and so freeing 
um, that it just opened up all these new possibilities for me. And I started um, practicing and then teaching contemplative photography, um, you know, which really is a mindfulness practice that uses the camera as a tool of perception. Um, and yeah, it just, um, it just opened so much for me creatively. Yeah, I can relate to so much of what you just said, and we can talk about that offline. <laughs> but I started training classically at around that age too, and kind um, of rebelled against it as well. So I can definitely relate. Well, that's worth more of a conversation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got your PhD, and then you wrote a book, and I feel. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So I, um, with the encouragement of, of my faculty and, and very specifically, um, Ruth Richards, well, all of them, you know, my, my dissertation committee was Ruth Richards, Steve Pritzker, Terry Goslin Jones, all incredibly supportive. Um, but there was, you know, a real emphasis on like strike while the iron is hot. You've just completed this dissertation. It's this huge project that you have to go through and why not turn it into a book, you know? And so I, I felt a lot of encouragement around that. And I, the year that I finished my PhD, I was, um, I went to the um, APA conference, American Psychological Association um, conference and presented on my research there and happened to connect through another colleague of mine from Saybrook with a one of the commissioning editors um, for psychology at Palgrave Macmillan, and they had a series on creativity and innovation, um, and they were interested in what I was working on. And so, um, you know, worked to kind of take the findings from my doctoral research and kind of re rework it, rewrite it and put it into a more applied context uh, and make it into a book, which I did, um, which was really exciting. So that was my first book. And it was about, so my research was about kind of mindfulness and creativity and organizations. So taking what I had learned about contemplative arts and creativity and um, applying to see how it could benefit teams and organizations. So that was what my research was about and the book. And then um, meanwhile, uh, I've been working for many years with a business partner, Charlotte Gullick um, in Syncreate, which is the name of our kind of uh, collaboration that we have together and that the podcast is derived from that. But she and I and um, a, a few other collaborators have been working on kind of you know, we, we were originally going to try to create an app for creativity. So we worked on that a lot and we realized that we weren't really um, so technically oriented, but we had a lot of good ideas. And so Charlotte and I decided to kind of channel what we had um, sort of created and the ideas that we were working with around a model of the creative process and kind of channel that into a book. So the book is also called Syncreate, and it's a guide to navigating the creative process for individuals, teams, and communities, and kind of, um, you know, puts 
puts our understanding of creativity as teachers, as coaches, as creatives ourselves um, into this sort of three-step process or model, which is play, plan, and produce. So in the creative process, you know, we have that ideation phase where we play, we come up with ideas, we daydream, we fantasize. And then, as we know, you know, in order to actually bring a creative project to completion, we do have to plan. And many of us who consider ourselves creatives, you know, like to live in the ideation phase more than the implementation phase, but both are necessary to get anything done. So there's the planning. It's like, okay, how are we actually, I have this idea for a book. So what's my goal? Like, when do I want to complete a draft? And how do I kind of break that down into how many pages do I need to write per week? And do I have accountability partners who can help keep me on track and things like that, which is why, by the way, I think coaching is so helpful just to have somebody kind of helping us along the way. Um, and then the last stage is produce, which is where we really bring our work out into the world. So we go through multiple drafts or iterations, we get feedback on our work, and then eventually, you know, we publish it or perform it or, you know, have our gallery show or release it into the world, whatever that looks like. Um, and, you know, also with the understanding, this is not a linear process, creativity is messy, but at least this gives us a bit of a framework to work with. Um, and, you know, sometimes we go through each of these phases multiple times in the course of a particular project, but it's just a way of helping people get kind of from start to finish on their creative work. I like that An action plan. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. If people would like to buy your book or listen to your podcast, uh, where could we guide them to? Yes, absolutely. So you can find it all at syncreate.org. And um, there's a page there for the podcast. There's a page there for the book. Um, so all things syncreate live there. And then I also have um, a kind of personal page that's a hub for all the different things that I do, which is my name, melindarothhouse.com. And um, we've talked a little bit about music too. Um, so my music site, I'm a singer, songwriter, and bass player um, is melindajoy.com. Great. I'll put those into the show notes so people can click on them really easily and find awesome. Yes. Great. Yeah. So is there anything that we didn't get to that, that you want to? I think we've covered a lot of great stuff. I mean, I'm curious, of course, to hear more about you. So <laughs> we need to do a Syncreate podcast with you. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but this has been really great. I really appreciate you know, the opportunity and just kind of the, you know, having having been hosting a podcast now for for, you know, a bit, it's nice to, uh, to be a guest. Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity. Different being on the other side. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is for sure. I'm happy to have you. And I do have one last question for you. So you're not off the hook quite yet. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so I, like I wrap up all of my podcasts with this question, 
And that is, if your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? Ah, oh, yes. That's good. I think, oh, it's so interesting. There's so many places one could go. Um, I just did this wonderful sort of workshop and retreat last weekend about, you know, sort of like energetic boundaries and, and, you know, kind of back to that question of how we take in all these messages from the world and how to create good boundaries and just protect our, our own spirit, our own energy, our own creativity. But I think for me, you know, you also asked in the very beginning about vulnerability. And I think for me, this, the journey of this lifetime is very much about opening my heart you know, allowing myself to be vulnerable, which in turn invites other people to share their vulnerability. And that's where like real intimacy and connection comes from. And I think I just, I guess my billboard is I've come to believe that love is the most powerful force in the universe. You know, mm -hmm. and the more that we, I guess, sort of tune into that, for ourselves and then we can become a mirror for others and then we can amplify that and I just think we need that so much in the world right now yeah I definitely agree with you yeah until you experience the depth of that it can sound like a hallmark greeting card yeah so I would encourage people to explore that in depth Absolutely. And I think just to add to that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of Jungian depth psychology. And I think it's really true. They say that, you know, sort of joy and sadness are two sides of the same coin. And, and I absolutely think, you know, th there is tremendous suffering in the world and we all experience it in different ways in our own lives. And I think, you know, it's so imperative that we do explore that, like the full depth of our being, um, the the dark or shadowy places that we might fear to go. And I think those are really worth exploring. It's, you know, I teach a course on creativity and individuation, which is sort of the journey to wholeness and that, you know, to be fully expressed in life and to to become fully whole, we have to explore all of those facets of our being, not just the light, shiny, happy stuff. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I need to take that class, I think. Yes, absolutely. I would love it. Thought about it already. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for being a guest. Absolutely, Whitney. And so thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time... Stay tuned in to you.